Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested on this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, joingelt.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really amazing founder, you know, a founder that, uh, you know, is going to be telling us about his journey with this rocket ship that he's uh, riding and uh, building, scaling, financing, all of that good stuff, you know, raising money, you know, on tough times like uh, COVID and, you know, pivots, uh, how they've been adjusting to whatever the market was telling them and and so forth. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, BJ Johnson. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Great to be here. So you grew up in Seattle. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? Uh, it, was, it was a very different place to grow up than it is now. This was obviously before Amazon, um, but it was, a, it was a great place. My parents moved there in the 80s when it was sort of that, that place to start a family. Um, grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, was very lucky to have... Um, Really, a, a diverse ecosystem, access to outdoor activities, rainy rainy winters, but beautiful summers that I got to enjoy there, um, and that really did kind of form some of the initial passion that I had for the environment and protecting it. Um, growing up in a place that was very privileged to have um, a very beautiful environment, for sure. So, how do you get into problem solving, and more specifically, like math, engineering, stuff like that? Yes, I was always very fascinated by. Um, I think physics in particular, the fact that you could describe what would happen, you know, even basic stuff, you throw a ball, you know where it's going to land based on things like numbers and equations and the way that calculus and physics is all tied together based on the work that, you know, Newton did back in the day. So I think I was, I was very fascinated, I think, by just the, the analytical nature of problem solving, that we could do this with these numbers on a page that we had learned to manipulate from when we were young. Um, and then that was sort of in college evolved from being a passion for physics, generally sort of understanding how the world works into moving more like engineering, imply, uh, applying physics, excuse me, to solve very critical problems. So then let's talk about uh, packing the bags and, and going to Stanford. Why, why, why Stanford out of all, you know, universities and, uh, I mean, it sounds like you've been getting every single degree, you know, that exists, you know, out of Stanford. So it's a, the undergrad, the grad, you know, the PhD, I mean, everything that you could extract from Stanford. I mean, tell us, you know, what, what's going on with Stanford? 
so it was, I was a competitive swimmer for a very long time um, in high school through college and actually after. So when I was looking at uh, schools that had both strong engineering and science programs, but also strong athletic departments, strong swimming programs, um, as you might imagine, that's a... <laughs> A pretty short list. Most schools tend to either be very academically focused or they have a very strong athletic department, not both. Um, Stanford did have both. So that was sort of an easy choice for me. Um, and it was, you know, I think kind of talking about the origin story and that, and that sort of fascination with, with numbers and engineering, it was really in grad school. So after my bachelor's, when I was starting the master's, that I let, met the professor, uh, Chris Edwards, who eventually became the thesis advisor for both myself and my co-founder, Julie. Um, and that's where that kind of focus on, um, you know, broadly engineering to narrowing on the climate problem um, really started to come to fruition and, and really um, show that I made the right choice in terms of why I went to Stanford. Finding a connection like that to start a company like Clearflame um, would not have happened without Stanford. Well, obviously, you know, they're in Stanford, too. It's a, the land of innovation. That's where everything gets incubated. So, so what's about Stanford, you know, that it's just like such a drive towards entrepreneurship and, and, and why so many companies come out of Stanford? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, it's, it's a bit circular at times. You know, the fact that Silicon Valley put its roots down there, um, you know, Hewlett Packard, and there are people at Stanford that went way back before Silicon Valley being a thing. Um, but, you know, the fact that Silicon Valley did grow there um, created a, an ecosystem around software, around silicon, around everything that it takes to create the or have created the computer age. Um, so I think that was sort of how it came to fruition. I think why it's perpetuated. Um, the Bay Area is one of the, the few places I've lived in my life where entrepreneurship, I think, is, is not scary. Um, it's something that I experience a lot as you move away from the West Coast. You know, what, you know if I go work for a startup, the startup might fail. Which I think, if you if you grew up in the Silicon Valley ecosystem, that's almost like a, a a badge of honor, right? Like you know, I have failed and I learned from it. And I think that sort of mentality, if you don't need to be afraid of failure, that there's nothing bad about you know being at a company that might not succeed, that makes it easier to to leap without looking or <laughs> without looking as much as you should, which things the nature of any startup. Um, but all that said, you know, I think um, while Stanford was great for sort of instilling that entrepreneurial spirit. Um, you know, Silicon Valley does focus largely on software, on, you know, electronics and the type of company that Clearflame was, is, you know, a, a industrial commercial vehicle, you know, heavy duty engine company actually wasn't really the, the bread and butter of, of Silicon Valley. That's one of the reasons I think why we're in Chicago today is to better align with that, that ecosystem that supports us. But the training that you got from the Valley in terms of how you think about uh, creating and growing a company and, and just the lessons of fundraising and all those things that translate from business to business. Um, yeah, there's no other place in the world like like that location for for teaching you about all of those tactics and values. So then tell us about how the Clear Flame, you know, how does it come to life? You know, give us a walk through that a process and journey from incubation all the way to finally, you know, make it happen. Yeah, you know, I, I think the origin of it actually comes before incubation. So the, the technology that became Clearflame had originally been my graduate work. So I guess sort of starting there, why was my graduate work the graduate work? Uh, that, that goes back to Professor Edwards. And, and one of the things he taught about energy is that there's actually two sides of the energy problem. There's the need to achieve sustainability, you know, 
humans are driving climate change, period. And if we don't actually get to net carbon neutrality, that trend is not going to stop. Um, and I think that's one that I think everyone in the world is aware of today. There's this other side of the energy problem that I think is very easy to ignore in the United States, and frankly, is particularly easy to ignore in California and Silicon Valley, which is that energy is actually critical for, for quality of life. There are a few things that actually improve human outcomes, a few things that are more correlated with increasing G GDP, increasing quality of life than increasing access to energy. And at the time we were, were starting this uh, graduate work, there were still close to a billion people in the world that didn't have access to basic electricity. So to circle back to Clearflame and the concept, that was sort of the question is how do we actually expand energy access? in a way that is affordable and is a way that in a way that is better aligned with the way people get their energy and goods today but without uh, without having that increase in energy access contributing to climate change and that sort of became the thesis behind clearflame how do you make the diesel engine without the diesel fuel so that the engine can keep filling all of its vital economic functions and i don't just mean the freight trucks that we have here in the united states but also the power generators that many developing economies rely on to keep their lights on? Um, how do we allow it to keep filling that function without being coupled to dirty diesel fuel, which is driving both climate change and, and uh, human health outcomes due to the, the bad pollution, the sudden smog it produces? So then tell us, you know, what was that moment where it became so clear that you were like, okay, let's go? Yeah, I think it was... Um, you know, and it's 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 never one moment, right? It's an evolution of thinking, but it was around sort of later on in, in finishing up the PhD. So this would have been 2013, 2014, 2015, somewhere in there. Um, the the project initially was about making engines cleaner and more efficient. Um, and not to go too far into the details, you know, basically in in doing that, you want to have a higher temperature combustion system for for thermodynamic reasons, for efficiency reasons. But you know, that's about making an engine sort of a point or two more efficient so you can make better use of the fuel resources that we have. The kind of aha moment was saying, okay, if you have a higher temperature engine, that engine no longer requires diesel fuel. You can run on something that is already re readily available in the world today, like the ethanol we have in North and South America, or the methanol that is um, one of the primary renewable energy carriers that we can produce today. The shift from making an engine slightly more efficient to being able to use a fundamentally different fuel that can be produced in a, a cheaper and, and more environmentally friendly way, that was sort of that aha. That's when it went from the, the 2 to 3% improvement that can be a good engineering effort and a good academic effort to, you know, to the 2x to 10x reduction in emissions and costs and, and a bunch of other variables that really drive a startup, that drive a venture-fundable um, technology. And I think it was when we realized, okay, this is actually about enabling global economies to have their lifeblood move from diesel fuel to something better. That was the aha that said we can make this into a growing business. So then talking about now the growing business, uh, Clearflame, you know, for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model? How do you guys make money? Yeah. So this this is actually one of the ones that we've had to actually pivot on on quite a bit over the years. So when we started the company, um, we thought we were going to be a technology provider to OEMs, to, to engine manufacturers. You know, if you build a diesel engine today, you can use our technology to um, basically take that same production process, but but be able to sell it using a, a cheaper and cleaner fuel. You know, what's not to like? You don't have to change your behavior. 
but you're making something that is cheaper and cleaner for your customers, it's it's a win-win for everyone. Um, and under that model, you know, that is, you know, us essentially developing the technology and licensing that IP. So uh, revenue through royalties back to Clearflame. I think the mistake we made in that thinking, and there's not anything wrong with that that model. I think it's actually our our long-term vision. But I think what we underestimated, and it's something that a lot of entrepreneurs underestimate, which is the primary choice of the market is basically always going to be the main t- to maintain the status quo. That people generally won't shift unless something is so compelling that they that they have to do it. Um, and that was something that you know Clearflame learned in terms of trying to push on these large manufacturers to adopt. Well, yeah, they could make a they could make an engine cheaper or cleaner. Uh, for their customers, or they could just keep selling the engines they make today. There's not a lot of incentive to shift. And so what Clearflame pivoted around um, because of that experience, which in hindsight was obvious, but at the time really wasn't, um, was actually going directly to customers. So if you have trucks today um, or you need a truck today, Clearflame can actually go to you, whether you're a large fleet or a power generator user or even a piece of construction equipment, say, hey, we will retrofit your engine for you or get you a truck and retrofit it and sell it to you so that we are selling product straight to the end customers. And we've been very successful in that. We have um, you know, five of the 10 biggest fleets in the country are on our fleet council. There are early testers, early customers, early evangelists. Um, and once you start to get that market pull, then you'll be able to go back to the OEMs and say, hey, I'm actually winning over your customers. Let's do this together as a partner rather than having us be competing for the same customer base. So what that means is for now it is more direct sales but i think long term being able to get to that licensing to monetize our ip with anyone who produces diesel engines today not just clearflame and our remanufacturing partners uh that's that's sort of in the growth of the business model and then what about the um the adjustment there to market because i know that the the model that you guys are pushing today you know is is not what you got started with so tell us about the market pivot and and that you know, journey of listening to towards adjusting ourselves yourselves to what really the market you know was demanding ultimately. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's it was it was less a question about what the market was demanding and and more a question of what channels were open to us at at this time. And I think when people when people think about product market fit, sometimes it gets a little bit oversimplified. It's you know, is is there a customer problem? Um, and can you solve it with your technology? And that defines product market fit, which which at a at a high level is true, but that's not all it takes to create a viable business. You, know, you have to have a way to get that technology to that customer. And that was, I think, where Clearflame was sort of wrong, that we knew there was a challenge with fuel costs, emissions, and the continued need for for diesel-style engines. And we knew our technology could solve those problems. But you know, asking someone else to build those engines for us—that that was the mistake we made. And so, what the market was telling us was not that we didn't have product market fit. The market was telling us that we had chosen the wrong channel to bring that technology to market initially. And that was the okay. If if the end users are screaming for it, and we have the technology, let's find a way to get it into our hand, into their hands. And and that's when we started partnering with some of these smaller, more nimble players out there—the people that rebuild and remanufacture diesel engines in the aftermarket today 
um, and also working with the suppliers, people who make injectors and pistons for engines today. Let's bring together the ecosystem, frankly, with or without the OEMs, to be able to provide this technology directly to the end user. And at the same time, keeping the OEMs up to date on what we're doing, we have very good relationships with them. And as we build this sort of market base, prove this isn't just about dozens or hundreds of engines, but thousands and tens of thousands, now those channels will open up. And that's something we've been hearing from the beginning. If the opportunity is big enough, these large companies will move and follow. But it takes them a long time to move and follow. So you have to really, the onus is on us as the startup, as Clearflame, to show them that market opportunity so that they can invest the resources to make what is a much slower pivot and shift for them than it would be for us as the startup. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domain. So I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. A good example here is Aurora.tech, which is an innovative brand that has the .tech Domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety value and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you, and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers. And that's again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. And then what about the financing? Because, um, you know, you guys have raised a, raised a little bit of money. How much capital have you guys raised to date? About $50 million in total across the seed A and B. So tell us what that journey was, because I know that the seat, you know, was a little bit rocky, eh? racing right before the whole COVID craziness. Uh, well, fortunately, the seat was was not rocky, because in, in hindsight, we just got super lucky on the timing. So we, yeah. we closed that round, led by Clean Energy Ventures out of Boston, back in February of 2020. So, you know, people had heard of the word COVID, uh, but they didn't know what it was going to mean um, in terms of what it did to everyone and everything, right? Um, and so we were able to kind of close that round before a lot of the franticness set into the market of everyone sort of freaking out in Q2 and Q3 uh, of 2020. So we were lucky to get in front of that. And of course, you know, I think the that was pretty rapidly followed by one of the biggest clean tech booms we've ever had, you know, the whole SPAC market that, that happened in, in 2021, which had a lot of advanced mobility companies in it. Um, you know, that actually was sort of part of, of Clearflame's pivot is that the financial markets were also set, showing us like, hey, you know, there is value in, you know, these capital intensive companies that can deliver product straight to end users. And while I've stayed away from making cap, uh, Clearflame too capital intensive, you know, having us be focused on really being a technology provider, I think that market shift was was a good thing. And um, you know, I think when we when we got the seed round done, we were smart enough to sort of stay efficient with our capital, keep building traction, keep being focused on technology development rather than kind of like the big marketing splashes without the substance to back it up. Um, we stayed focused on that with the seed, used that to raise an A, which was led by Breakthrough Energy Ventures back in 2021. Um, to move from the kind of demonstration scale to actually putting trucks on the road. The trucks on the road was allowed us to raise the Series B 
um, late 22 and early 23, led by Mercuria, the big energy commodity trader. Um, and here we are today being able to, or being prepared to deploy our first kind of uh, PO generating, revenue generating um, customer demos and really kind of scaling the company up from there. How has the company changed though as a, you were like adding all these different rounds, like the corporate structure, the governance, you know, now with a board and, you know, obviously the dynamics sort of different than just having like a bunch of dudes or, or ladies there just in one room, just like pushing, you know, towards one thing and wearing all types of hats. How has, how, how, how have things changed, you know, in, in that regard as well? You know, we, we were, we're lucky to have CEB lead the A, you know, we sort of had a board in place, you know, it was a small board, but still a board in place and having to do the, all the right things governance wise. I'm really going all the way back to our seed round. Um, we've done very well as a company to not just be uh, a bunch of young guys and gals, um, but also some veterans from the sector that really know what it takes to both succeed as a company and also succeed in this space. And so the things you have to do, the I's you have to dot, the T's you have to cross to be a public company someday, or frankly, even a large private company someday, you know, that was instilled in what Clearflame had to be from the very beginning. And the other, um, blessing in disguise, a little bit hard to, to say it about something like COVID, um, but that that did help us there was a lot of our early growth. You know, when we closed that seed round, we were five people, I think. And so a lot of the growth of our company actually was happening in 2020, in 2021, during COVID, during the kind of remote work culture. And so we, we learned to have to work together um, from different locations, not literally being in the same room as each other, as you as you just described. And so now, Clearflame as we're pushing 50 people and we have people working in our development facility in the West suburbs of Chicago, but also our partner facility in Southern Indiana, uh, a business development team that's scattered across the country doing sales, doing marketing. You know, we were already sort of prepared for that more um, decentralized, structured nature because of the way that we we grew. And so we were lucky to actually have that that experience as part of our growth. And so while we've had growing pains around Anyone's going to have grow have growing pains when you grow from five to fifty, um, but it was it was more just about um, you know being able to get the right reporting structures in place, making sure information flows correctly throughout the company, which we still don't do as well as we need to do. Um, but it was more about those types of issues than than it, how do we even like maintain coherence and work together. We we had to practice that very well from a very early stage. And what about the uh, pushing the operation and also the culture when you have uh, people, you know, scattered all across the country and in different places? I mean, how how do you go how do you go about that? Yeah, that that has been one of the hardest things. Um, you know, I, I think we are we are lucky to have a group of people that is very missionally aligned um, in a very diverse way. You know, I think everyone at Clearflame is united by the passion of being able to achieve cost-effective solutions to sustainability. But but some people, you know, that's more about purely the sustainability angle. You know, I want to do something about climate change. For some people, it's more about, okay, people need climate conscious solutions, but we're selling to single-digit margin sectors. How do you allow people to be sustainable without having to choose between that and feeding their families? Um, we have people that um, you know are veterans of the engine industry and are are excited to show how their multi-decade expertise and their traditional core competency is compatible with sustainable future, we've been able to bring all those diverse parties together behind that kind of singular mission, cost-effective sustainability. And that has helped a lot. Um, 
it still is hard though. You know, we we still do virtual team building events to make sure we can get everyone in the same room and and develop that rapport. Um, you know, every chance we have to kind of bring people into the office for, you know, all hands meetings or quarterly reviews or whatever it might be, we we like to take advantage of it. Um, but that that is one of the toughest things is actually maintaining the the esprit de corps um, when you do get scattered across the country that way. So again, we we've done okay with it, but still can always be better. Now, obviously, vision, you know, it's a big one. And that's something that, uh, you know, you got to get really enrolled the team. You got to get enrolled the investors. And uh, and yeah, ultimately, it's the future that you're living into, no? So keeping that in mind, if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Clear Flame is fully realized, what does that world look like? The, the, two, two parts of the answer. I think kind of the what does the world look like? Um, that was something I, I was saying earlier that, you know, diesel fuel, petroleum diesel fuel as the lifeblood of global economies, improving quality of life, that that is no longer true. That users in different economies and different places in the world have the ability using technologies like Clearflame to choose the fuel that is most economically viable and environmentally friendly, both of those things for their particular market. Um, my co-founder, Julia, says this better than me, which is, you know, your your outcomes when it comes to energy access or fuel access shouldn't be based on whether you happen to be born in a country that is on top of where a bunch of dead dinosaurs turned into um, oil tens of millions of years ago. So I think decoupling the world from its dependence on on petroleum diesel fuel is is what that world looks like. I think the other part of the answer I would give is kind of what has Clearflame created, how we contributed to it. Um, because I think, you know, if it, climate change is, is such a big problem, if we're going to solve it, there is no one company that, that will solve it on their own. Anyone who tells you that is lying or naive. Um, and so I think when it comes to clear flame, it is not just, it's not just how, or that, that vision of what we're trying to create, but how we brought people to it, how we've created that follower movement that we have fleets that have looked at the example of Clearflame and said, hey, I either want that technology or look, oh, look, they proved that there's a way to make sustainability cost effective. Maybe the Clearflame solution isn't for me, but I'll find something else that allows me to move that needle in the right direction because Clearflame has shown that it's possible. Um, and just like Tesla has created this movement around EVs that Tesla went out there and proved that customers wanted EVs and became a trillion dollar company. And now every OEM out there for GM, uh, Chrysler are making EV products that we're going to do the same thing in heavy duty. That Clearflame is going to become the Tesla of heavy duty, which means 10 years from now, 15 years from now, when when we're no longer reliant on petroleum diesel fuel, it's not because everyone is driving a Clearflame truck produced by Clearflame, but that they will have you know Clearflame enabled trucks produced by Volvo or Peterbilt or Kenworth. And that they will be using where it makes sense solutions like hydrogen or EV or renewable natural gas or renewable diesel and applications where Clearflame doesn't make sense, that everyone is moving in the right direction because of the example that we've created. And do you think do you think we still have a shot here at the, at saving things towards climate change? Because there's a lot of negative people. <laughs> you were talking to a negative person, uh, despite being an entrepreneur. Um, no, I, there's there's absolutely still a, a shot at at saving things. Um, yeah. I I think we really do need to to start being 
honest with ourselves about where we're at, though, to be very blunt about it. So, um, you know, under the Paris Accords, um, you know, there's this target to uh, keep global warming below 1.5 C, 1.5 centigrade from from where it is today. That's not going to happen. Um, that's the equivalent of someone saying they're 62 years old. They've never saved for retirement, but they're still going to retire at 65. It, the, the math just doesn't work. We haven't made enough progress on reducing carbon to date. Now, that doesn't mean, Alejandro, that there's no hope. Um, because to go back to the, the individual trying, trying to retire, if a 62-year-old tells you they're going to start saving now and retire at 65, it's not a good thing to tell them, yep, that's possible, because you need to get them a more realistic understanding, a more realistic plan, but you shouldn't tell them they're totally screwed either. You meet them halfway, you say, okay, no, let's make a plan so that you can retire by 70 or something like that. And, and the same thing is true for climate as well. We're not going to hit 1.5 C, but let's start having a conversation about how far below 2 C warming we can stay. Acknowledge we're not going to hit the original goals. Use that to inject a sense of realism into the conversation. We can't just keep making these goals and keep failing at them. That's not progress for anyone. And let's have a real plan to limit the damage as much, damage as, much as we can, because it's not too late to stop the worst parts of climate change from happening. I absolutely believe that's true. Um, and I think we will succeed in winning this fight, but it's going to require people to really start taking some hard looking at the progress we're making. An example of this would be, you know, clear flame. Our trucks cut carbon emissions in half with a fuel that already exists today and with a fuel that's already cheaper than diesel fuel. So it's cutting emissions in half with something that's already economically viable and already scaled. And there are some people that like to kind of, um, crap on that solution because it's not perfect today. Even though we've used carbon negative fuels in our engine, we know we can scale to being perfect and frankly better than perfect. We're not entirely there today. And we don't have the luxury of letting perfectly be the enemy of good. Clearflame is 50% better, not perfect, but 50% better in a world where carbon emissions from transportation are still going up. And so if we want to start making progress, we got to acknowledge in order to get to net zero, first step is to stop increasing. Let's plateau. Let's get part of the way there. And then let's get all the way there. And if we can't do that incrementally, if we can't start making progress towards the goal, we will never actually achieve that climate target. And that's the realism that I think ClearFound is trying to be an example. So now we're talking here about the future. And, you know, we've been talking about like what's possible and, and some situations, but I want to talk about the past. And I want to talk about the past with a lens of reflection. I want, you, I want to bring you back in time. I want to bring you back in time to 2016, to 2016, to that moment where you were wondering what you were going to do with your life as an entrepreneur. What were you going to bring to market? You know, in that uh, campus, you know, at Stanford, full of innovation, full of classmates of yours launching their own companies. Let's say you're able to have a sit down with that younger self, you know, maybe in a classroom, you're able to just sit down next to that younger BJ and you're able to give that younger BJ one piece of advice while you're daydreaming about what you could do as an entrepreneur and you're able to give that younger BJ one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? The biggest thing I would want to impress on a younger version of me um, and I think this is actually true for a lot of engineering entrepreneurs. You know, as engineers, we are trained to be very 
tactical, very blocking and tackling. You know, how do we solve this problem? I mean, I think you heard that in my previous answer about how we incrementally start tackling climate change. Um, there's a method to solving things with engineering, with science. It's, it's why science and engineering appeals to, to people like me. I think sometimes that can be tricky for you being an entrepreneur because you always want to focus on what you need to do. I need to do A, B, C, D, and E to make this company successful. And that's, that's what you're communicating to investors. When I think as engineers and as we take for granted, communicating the size of the problem that we're solving, both in terms of the size of the problem that we have to solve, but also the size of the business opportunity that comes from solving that problem. And I think making sure that, you know, when you're pitching people on this vision, the vision of Clearflame or really any early company, making sure you're focused first and foremost on what this can be and then getting into the what it takes to get there. You know, again, I think, you know, I, I come from a culture where proving you know all the steps is actually proving you know what you're doing. But there's a first step that we forget about as engineers, which is proving this is even worth working on in the first place. And it's pitching that bigger vision before you get into the details. That's something I would say to myself and then a lot of people starting companies, especially from engineering backgrounds. Love it. So BJ, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah, uh, so you can follow Clearflame on LinkedIn, Clearflame Engine Technologies. We also have a presence on, on Twitter. Our website is www.clearflame.com. Um, the biggest barrier we face as a company is, is still people knowing we exist, that this solution is possible, that we can start making progress cost-effectively on climate change. So um, I'm very grateful for the audience for listening today. And, and anything you can do to follow us and amplify our mission, I'd be even more grateful for. Amazing. Well, hey, BJ, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you, Alejandro. Much appreciated. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.